I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we try to cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. My guest today is Jason Atkins, the executive director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. For our regular listeners, you've heard me explain just a little bit in the past uh, what, a, what a Catholic conference is, representing the bishops of, of any given state uh, on matters of, of public policy. Um, a lot of conferences uh, look somewhat similar. South Dakota's at the, the smaller end of things. They were a conference uh, staff of, of one joined by my colleague to the North, uh, North Dakota, also a staff of one, some of the mountain states. Jason, I've got Catholic Conference jealousy of you because you've got a little bit uh, <laughs> bigger staff up there in Minnesota, but uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a delight to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So, Jason, um, I really want to talk about uh, the topic for the day, which is this Bostock decision that came out from the Supreme Court just a couple of weeks ago. But before we launch into that, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, both personally and professionally? I'm a lawyer by training like you. Don't hold it against me. I hope your listeners and viewers won't hold that against us. But um, it's actually helpful in terms that we're, sense that we're all in sales at the end of the day and lobbying and, and public policy is a sales job. You just have a different, uh, different customer and you have a different type of product. And what we sell as lobbyists for the Catholic Church is good public policy rooted in right principles and right reason based in uh, the dignity of human person and promoting what we think is the common good. So that's the, the bread and butter of what I do professionally, like you. But uh, personally, uh, I, I didn't ever expect to be in this work. Uh, I thought I'd be a law professor or a judge or a civil rights attorney. I was a civil rights attorney for the Institute for Justice before taking this position, which was really good training in many instances. And, uh, uh, but uh, just have a love for the church, a love for politics and connecting the two. I've been doing this basically since college. I was an econ and theology major. So always asking, how do you connect more the moral dimension to the language of public policy and economics is often the language we use for public policy. And then did a master's thesis on property rights and Thomas Aquinas and then a law degree. And, and here I am today, I've got four wonderful kids, two boys and two girls, ranging from age nine to 15. So they're growing up pretty fast and uh, try to balance that with uh, all the jujitsu of political work and lobbying. And we're still at it here in Minnesota because we've got special session all summer. Well, God bless you for that work. And I'm just, um, you know, for our listeners too, Jason is a bit older than I am. I'm late thirties and you're, you know, I don't, always want to speculate early 40s early 40s but you've been at your you've been at the minnesota catholic conference for what 10 years or so now almost yeah nine and a half Mm -hmm. so so you've been there since i was a student at the university of st thomas um i'm not a minnesota native but spent uh, seven wonderful years there both going to law school and then practicing in in a rural area so i i was even familiar with you and your work as a student and it's just been really encouraging in some ways to kind of feel like i'm a bit um behind you, so to speak, kind of in your wake and you, you just, you're doing, well, you really, can learn from my mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well put, well put. So thanks. Uh, thanks for just sharing a little bit about yourself. You know, did, the topic of conversation today, I really wanted to, to get on just a pro like yourself with, with such a, you know, a scholarly background in the law, but this, this, there's this big decision, Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, combined with a couple of other cases, and, and maybe just to set the stage, I got to ask like right off the bat, 
Is this as big of a deal as, as it feels? Yes. The answer is yes. It's absolutely a, a Copernican revolution in law uh, to the extent that it, it imposes a new metaphysics of uh, gender, identity, gender identity ideology upon our laws and the implications for that are really breathtaking over the long haul. And we'll hopefully have some time to dig into that and what that means. But it presumes that a man who says he's a woman is in fact a woman and should be treated that way. And uh, that's gonna have implications far beyond the employment context, which was the specific matter of the case at hand. It's gonna have uh, implications for healthcare, for free speech, uh, for in women's sports, all sorts of areas of life. And because it requires everyone else to embrace this new metaphysics uh, that basically says that human nature is plastic, that there is no sexual binary of male and female, that these are essentially constructs, that we have a right to define ourselves uh, as we believe in our subjective sense, regardless of biological or metaphysical reality. And in fact, ultimately, as Michael Hanby and others have said, it attacks the idea that we have a core common humanity, a common human nature. We're just a bunch of cells clumped together who uh, assert our identities at the end of the day. And I think unpacking that is going to be extraordinary over the well, long haul. You know, and um, I guess my sense, too, is just a complete agreement of, of just how revolutionary this is, a Copernican revolution, as you put it. But one thing that people who maybe aren't you know, attentive to the headlines of law and culture, like a Catholic conference director might be kind might, might kind of wonder like, really, what, what's happening? Do you mind maybe just kind of walking us through, like, before we even get to like some of the details of this, the, these cases, which are important, maybe just a sketch of the legal and cultural um, background that has ascended to this point. Yeah, and I like to state my thesis up front, so I appreciate the opportunity to do that. And then we get into the background and dig into that a little bit more. So that's great. I think, you know, we can talk about decisions about gay rights and, and those sorts of things, but I think we have to really uh, unpack that this has left uh, conservative jurisprudence as naked. And how did conservative jurisprudence that relies on allegedly neutral principles like the text of the law or originalism or separation of powers, all of the conservative jurisprudence developed in a way to cabin the discretion of judges to impose their moral preferences upon the law. We, there was judicial activism in the 50s and 60s, and people have reasonable debates about what is activism and what isn't, but there was a sense that judges were simply arbitrary on an arbitrary level imposing their policy preferences on law. Therefore, to avoid that sort of liberal moralizing, what were needed were neutral principles that would cabin the discretion of judges and require them to rule in a, in a way that was um, even-handed and that put bigger debates about morality to the side because at the end of the day, who, whose morality should control? In a, in a pluralistic society, we needed neutral principles to govern our disputes. Ironically, that's a liberal principle that conservatives ended up embracing. Well, it turns out you can't escape from morality. And that's, I think, the lesson from this case is that eventually all moral or law is about morals and morals is about metaphysics. And mm -hmm. here we are. And so uh, let me just point out by saying that this is exposed conservative jurisprudence and the reliance on allegedly neutral principles is an empty enterprise. Uh, a, a Federalist Society stalwart like Neil Gorsuch, a star of the conservative judicial firmament, 
who is going to apply the text of the law. He, he certainly did just, uh, claims to be doing that, but as Justice Alito says in the case, it's like a pirate ship. It's flying the flag of textualism or neutral principles, but instead it's, it's imposing a policy preference, and not just a policy preference, but as Michael Hanby and others have described, uh, a metaphysics. So I think we have to think about the political and legal background first of the decision to say what's going on here from a legal standpoint is conservatives have been left defenseless to fight back against these moral and anthropological revolutions because they're relying on the tools of process and principles. They're not making strong moral arguments. And we and folks have to ask themselves, why have conservatives been unable to make strong moral arguments and metaphysical arguments against some of these developments, instead relying on neutral principles of pluralism, separation of powers, religious liberty. Yeah, there's a cultural dynamic here and a cultural revolution that is sort of upstream of the legal revolution, and we can unpack that, but we have to say, you know, say, look, there's a political dynamic going on here, and conservatives have been unable to push back against it because they're relying on the wrong tools, legal tools, not moral and philosophical and even theological tools. Yeah, and one of the one of the um, the intellectuals that's kind of helped unpack this decision a little bit, Ryan Anderson is is kind of hammered that point consistently. Is it like we we actually shouldn't? I think the images he uses are like the shield and the sword, and so this this sort of neutral principle of religious liberty that you mention, which is a good thing that we we can and should defend. But it actually abandons territory. It abandons um, ground of argumentation that we need not abandon. And I think that just for an, some of us, you know, Catholics in the pews, sometimes we we feel maybe a bit embarrassed to make the case for for marriage or for to be a male, to be a female, because we feel um, we just feel culture's got us on the defense, and we're like, well, you know, religious liberty. I, I get the right to say this. It's like, well, no, actually. Not only do you get the right to say it, but you you also can re, you, you can have confidence that what you're saying is reasonable, true, knowable, and it's not a, a narrow religious truth like for Catholics don't eat meat on Friday kind of rule. But this is actually a truth available to to all human persons that are willing to use their their minds to engage it. So do you do you have any? Are there as you kind of sketch out very very well this sort of um, this tumultuous uh, um, struggle, if you will, between, you know, a moral argument. And are there any cases that come to mind uh, that, that we could look to in our American history that have brought us up to, to right now? Well, I think we need to think about the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and that's where all this case um, arises from. And we have to think about what the purpose of anti-discrimination is, laws are, and how they function. Are they a sword, as you said, or are they a shield? Now, the purpose of anti-discrimination laws and, and the Civil Rights Act in 1964 was to end Jim Crow. It was to continue to systematically dismantle systems of oppression and racial injustice in the South. But what it's ended up doing is becoming like, in, in the words of Christopher Caldwell, uh, the writer, it's become like a second constitution. It's the vehicle by which we promote a whole social revolution. 
So we have to think about, you know, the role and, and the way in which anti-discrimination laws operate and function. Can we make reasonable distinctions? Discrimination has become such a dirty word. We can't discriminate, you know. But if you substitute the word discrimination with differentiate um, or uh, – Dis- make distinctions. Yes. You know, we, no one wants to, dis- but, but we make distinctions and we differentiate things all the time. And those are yes. synonyms for discrimination. There are legitimate reasons to discriminate um, and in the right and the proper and rightly understood sense of the term. So we need to make rational distinctions about what those are. Instead, this, the idea of anti-discrimination and anti-discrimination principles means we can't make distinctions, that we can't differentiate through our reason when it's appropriate. And so what these laws end up doing is fomenting a broad social revolution and judges are the uh, arbiters and priests of this new revolution. They're the revolutionaries themselves. And that's uh, one of the reasons we've got to where we are now is that the power of uh, anti-discrimination in our society, the legacy of slavery and injustice and racism has become the vehicle by which we advance all sorts of other causes. I mean, we're dealing with that now right, is that that fighting racism, uh, brutality against African Americans then turns into a broader social movement where we're toppling statues and um, all sorts of other things. Uh, So it's it's really a, a challenge to how do we grapple with our historic legacy of discrimination while at the same time not throwing our ability to make basic distinctions and differentiate um, based on a whole number of, of rational classifications and interests. Well, and I think um, I think people broadly have, even if they're not lawyers, people broadly have a conception of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and some of the protections it offers in the employment law sphere, mainly because we're up, you know, we all work or have some exposure to, you know, the, the flyers that our employer puts up on the bulletin board in the lunchroom. But maybe I think it would be helpful at this point to just interject, what are some of the maybe give us some of the facts of the cases that were before the court to which this 1964 Civil Rights Act was being applied. So the cases came before the court because they involved people who were fired based on sexual orientation or gender identity. You had um, some cases where people uh, came out to their um, uh, fellow colleagues as gay and a county worker in one instance uh, another employee and these and then a case in which a funeral home worker came to, identified as male and was is male and showed up to work as male and then all of a sudden one day he came in as a she and the funeral home said I think this is going to make our customers and our people here in a difficult setting involving grieving and loss a little bit uncomfortable so maybe this is a problem and so these litigants were who were all fired Um, And we can get back to the just, uh, whether this was just or unjust in a moment, but just the basic facts of the case. So these claimants all sued saying that the Civil Rights Act, Title VII in the U.S. Code, which governs civil rights protections in employment contexts, those protections that prevented people from uh, suffering discrimination in employment based on sex or because of sex, as the court put it, applied when people were fired based on gender identity or sexual orientation. And the court goes at great lengths to the pen of Justice Gorsuch to highlight the fact that discrimination based on sex necessarily includes sexual orientation and gender identity. And this is the theory behind these terminated employees claim is that they are protected by existing civil rights laws 
that no one could have imagined included sexual orientation or gender identity in 1964 when it was passed. But the court has now said, in fact, these things are covered by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which leads into a big battle in the opinions about, well, does the text say this? Is the court being a legislature? Justice Alito writes a great dissent, but respectfully, it boils down to, well, that's not fair. He's misapplying the rules and he's not playing by the rules, which gets to my earlier point about why you actually need to make moral arguments in these cases. And they're in fact, they're not just necessary, they're unavoidable, because that's fundamentally what Justice Gorsuch does. He goes beyond the text. Uh, he goes beyond uh, the legislative intent. He goes beyond an, a proper idea of separation of powers, and the court acts as a super legislature to impose its own policy preferences on the statute. If you're just joining us, I'm Chris Motes, the host of Faith in Politics and the director of the South Dakota Catholic Conference. I'm joined today by my dear friend, uh, the executive director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, Jason Atkins. We're talking about the Bostock decision from the Supreme Court of just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and for those listeners that are tuning in in the state of South Dakota, the, one of the cases that Jason just described, the Harris Funeral Homes case, you'll be pleased to know that the Attorney General of the state of South Dakota submitted an, um, uh, an amicus brief uh, on behalf of the employer in that case, you know, taking a very reasonable view of to be a man, to be a woman, uh, arguing in defense of um, the definition of sex uh, as it's used in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Jason, I, re I really just love the way that you've taken this conversation to the, to like the actual important ground on which to stand, which is we need to be arguing, you know, is this just or not, or not just? So maybe to just step back to that question that you posed, you know, what's, what's the answer? Was it just for the employers in these three consolidated cases to terminate their employees on these grounds? Well, we have to start with the catechism, I think, and right, the right principles. And the catechism speaks in the context of at least sexual orientation that folks um, who are struggling in their sexual orientation, and it can be, be presumed gender identity as well, should be responded to with compassion, sensitivity, and that unjust discrimination should in fact be avoided. So that's, that's sort of a general meta principle here um, in conjunction with the anthropological principle, which is that men and women are created male and female, uh, and they're made for each other and made for life. <laughs> they're not made for same-sex relationships. They're not, um, uh, they weren't a, a, a subjective soul that's been placed in a body. So these anthropological claims and moral claims that are propounded by the LGBT plus crowd, these are false and are destructive of the well-being and dignity of those people uh, who live and perpetuate them. So those two truths have to walk in tandem here. So the question is, is, you know, were they treated justly? And we have to be able to make distinctions in some instances. Um, should someone be fired simply because they struggle or identify as gay? Maybe in some contexts, yes. In other contexts, perhaps no. Um, is the case of the funeral home worker who identified as, who was male, but identified as female, was it legitimate for the employer to fire him uh, in that situation? Um, perhaps it could have been. Uh, did they have a reasonable argument that it would make people uncomfortable? Yes, uh, the reality is is that it's so they were fired for not for being a woman, but for pretending to be a woman, 
And that's deeply problematic. I mean, there's a psychological issue there. I mean, one doesn't want to presume intent or what's going on in the heart or the soul of that person, but there's something problematic going on there that it's not simply a private affair. Once that person brings it into the employment context, once that person brings that into the public context, that has implications for other people. So we need to be able to deal with that and there needs to be able, we need to be able to make distinctions in certain contexts based on some of these questions. Is that discrimination? Well, biology isn't bigotry. When we talk about, um, you know, is someone male or someone female, to say that someone is male, to say that someone's a man and not a woman and only a man and exclusively a man is not bigotry, it's just to point out facts. And so when someone refutes their own biological identity and who they are and how they're created to be, that communicates a whole bunch of questions that need to be addressed. Sexual orientation is another matter that we've alluded to and are, is involved in these cases and involves some real challenges. So um, we have to be able to make distinctions, but are all distinctions based on sex, sexual orientation, gender identity per se illegitimate? No, but now we have a civil rights regime that is basically implying that you can't make any rational distinctions on these things, and that's particularly problematic. But the point is we can make reasonable distinctions based on these things, and we have to be able to adjudicate them rationally in yeah. public conversation. They can't just be simply adjudicated all the time by courts. Well, and one of the things that I think is so helpful just in, in permitting ourselves to be formed by the church, one of the things that the church does when she forms us in, in reason she gives us the ability to, to, to tease out nuance. So, you know, even just kind of looking at some of the nuances of this case, going again to the, to the Harris case at the funeral home is, you know, I don't think it was like the, the guy showed up to work and a dress and, and it was like, okay, you're fired. I think it was actually, well, um, the dress code for men is this. So the firing wasn't because he said, I am a woman. I think the firing is actually, well, we've got a particular standard for men in this, in this place. Um, it's a reasonable standard. You are a man. And if you don't think that you can abide by that standard, well, you know, then, then we actually have come to an impasse in that employer-employee relationship. But this nuance um, just gets so lost. And I, I got to, you know, I think it's so important that we do reason with even people who disagree with us, people who are, um, you know, marching under the banner of the LGBT movement. But, but that's something that even even people marching under that banner, it, it almost seems like deliberately ob obfuscated because it, as you sort of alluded to, even the, the L and the G, it's actually a different thing than the T. It's a different sort of anthropological understanding. Um, and you have people who identify as lesbian who think the transgender movement is completely you know, terrible because it eliminates women. And that's what one, the, the, if you now identify, you're a man who identifies as a woman and you're allowed to participate in women's activities, well, you've almost erased the concept of womanhood from law. Yeah, one of, um, one of these women, Kara Dansky, was in South Dakota last winter. We had a, a bill before our state legislature that would have kept doctors from doing radical, unalterable treatments, medical interventions on children who have gender confusion. And, and Karadansky probably doesn't agree with um, the teaching of the church on a whole lot. Um, she is a self-described radical feminist, the, the president of an organization called WOLF, the Women's Liberation Front. But she took great offense um, to these radical uh, gender, critical gender theories that purport that 
um, somebody who is a man can actually be, I'm kind of doing air quotes there for our listeners, can be a woman. She said, this is, this is offensive to me as a woman. Um, and I think she's right. We have so, to find common ground for the common good. And uh, in, in a world where we're being asked to deny basic biological reality, we have to team up with uh, whoever it's going to be to be able to say, we can't live by lies. I think that's the, the bottom line here. And if it's J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, who wants to say that men are men and not women, and that it's bad to pump children full of hormones to transition them, then despite our disagreements, perhaps with J.K. Rowling on a whole host of other issues, we should stand for the truth because now it's we're not debating complex nuances of law. We're debating basic biological and metaphysical reality. And that's uh, we need all the help and partners we can get in that front. Amen. Amen. So we've got about uh, just shy of three minutes left. Um, Archbishop Gomez, on June 15th, Archbishop Gomez is the president of the USCCB. He released a statement on the day of the Bostock decision. He says, I am deeply concerned that the U.S. Supreme Court has effectively redefined the legal meaning of sex in our nation's civil rights law. It's a beautiful statement. I've linked to it on the the South Dakota Catholic Conference uh, Facebook page. You know, not every Supreme Court decision, not every act of government gets a statement from the president of the USCCB. Oftentimes it's chair of various committees and subcommittees that put out a statement. This decision merited uh, a, a statement in very diplomatic language, deep concern, but he's, he's pretty clear and firm. What is, um, in just a couple minutes we have remaining, Jason, any thoughts on, on what this decision means for the, for the next few years ahead for both us as a church or, to, or us as a nation? Well, one thing that's deep in the conscience of Catholics is Roe v. Wade. And this is definitely the Roe v. Wade of gender identity ideology. And it will end up just like with abortion, uh, endless litigation on all kinds of issues for years to come. Um, it's going to have implications in a, a lot of contexts. What we've done and proactively here in Catholic schools and all of our dioceses is to say that in Catholic schools, uh, we will uh, proudly and affirmatively declare that men are men and not women and vice versa. And that will be presumed in the way in which we run our schools. So you know that if you're going to come to a Catholic school in the state of Minnesota, uh, though we will be pastorally appropriate and compassionate, of course, walk with people and truly accompany them to sexual integration, to a proper sexual identity, we will not be giving into gender identity ideology in our curriculum and how we speak and how we address one another. Um, these things are going to be um, that the schools and young people are the heart of the issue. And the church is going to be a place where people can learn a healthy and, and integrated and proper uh, sexuality and sexual identity that's consistent with the dignity of the human person. So regardless of the legal and political landscape, we've got to all dig up, roll up our sleeves, understand the implications of this decision, the cultural moment that we're in, and then do the best to help affirm and live the truth of the human person. want to really commend the work of, of Ryan Anderson, wrote a book a couple of years ago, When Harry Became Sally, that for me was really eye-opening. And of course, the beautiful teaching of the church is contained in the Catechism, St. John Paul the Great's Theology of the Body. I'd really recommend those to our listeners. Um, and, and Jason, just a, a big warm thank you for, for coming on the show this week. 
Oh, it's a blessing to be with you. I'm totally honored and, and consider me as grateful for your work as uh, I as you are for mine. And this is a tough job and our listeners need to know that Chris does a fantastic job in South Dakota. He's quickly emerged as a leader and uh, he counts on your prayers and support. So uh, thank you, Chris, for, for having me on. And thank you for listening, dear listeners. Uh, as always, don't hesitate to reach out. It's sdcatholicconference.org. Click contact us. Until next time, live well. 